the beauty of Bitcoin is that you can there's you know you can use it however you want. Um, and the beauty of mining Bitcoin is you can mine Bitcoin however you want. Welcome to the Swan Signal Podcast, a production of Swan Bitcoin. I'm your host, Brady Swinson. Swan Signal Live pairs great guests for compelling discussions about Bitcoin and economics. In this one, Amanda Fabiano, head of mining at Galaxy, and Yuri Bulovich, head of mining at Foundry, join us. We had a great Q&A session on Twitter Spaces after the episode and have included it here for you. Hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome back to Swan Signal Live. Thanks so much for joining us today. We've got a great show. We're going to focus on Bitcoin mining. We've got two all-stars from two of the biggest Bitcoin mining companies in the world. Uh, this is going to be a great conversation. A couple of words about Swan before we dive in. Uh, you know, a lot of you don't know this, and we need to do a better job of marketing this, which is why I'm talking about it right now. Swan is international. We uh, are available in just about every country in the world. There's a couple dozen that we can't operate in due to U.S. laws, but everyone else, uh, you can set up an account at Swan. Just go to swan.com, and we can serve you. You can transfer money into your Swan account with bank wires, and we would love to to serve you. We've got a team now that can help you uh, with any questions that you have, and we're excited to be global. You should also check out the Bitcoin Canon. Of course, Swan is dedicated to Bitcoin education. We want to create 10 million new Bitcoiners, not just Bitcoiners, people who are holding Bitcoin, but people who truly understand what's going on here. We believe that if we can do that, we can really push forward the adoption of Bitcoin by creating a vocal kind of minority of people to talk about Bitcoin, to advocate for Bitcoin uh, in the United States and beyond. So we think that's really important. You can check out the Bitcoin Canon. This is a new education project that we put together where we've decided that we realized there's so much Bitcoin education content out there. It's really blown up and just flourished over the past few years, both in quantity and quality. And so we decided that we really just need to apply some curation uh, on top of it. So we've recruited some of the best Bitcoin minds in the space to create rabbit holes on various topics. And they will go and hand pick what they think is the best content for that particular topic. And they'll create a little video introducing you to their rabbit hole and little summaries of each piece on why that piece is important to understand. So we've got all kinds of different various media in there, writing and podcasts and, and videos and all of that. It's amazing. Check it out at swanbitcoin.com slash canon or swan.com slash canon as it is now. We've uh, procured that domain, which is really exciting. Swan.com slash canon. We will be moving to Twitter spaces at the end of this show. So we'll do the live video portion here. This audio is going into spaces right now. You can find that space at Swan Bitcoin on Twitter or just at the top of your Twitter app. And we'll be moving to spaces after this for a live Q&A with our two guests. And then I will bring them up right now. We have... Uh, Yuri from uh, the found, uh, from Foundry, Foundry Digital, I think is the full name, uh, which has uh, running the largest Bitcoin mining pool in the world now, which is really exciting. He is the head of mining at Foundry Digital. He's pre previously the director of Bitcoin mining at Fidelity. And we also have Amanda Fabiano, who is the head of mining at Galaxy Digital now. And she also was the director <laughs> of Bitcoin mining at Fidelity before. So these two know each other very well and have worked in the space for a long time. So welcome to both of you. 
Thank you. Thanks Great for to having be on. us. Yeah, very excited to have you. So I'm going to start with an issue that came up. It's, it's been around for a long time, obviously, and it's being talked about in politics and today in the executive order that Biden released about cryptocurrencies. He, it was mentioned again. So the bit that where this was mentioned, you said the United States must maintain technological leadership in this rapidly growing space, supporting innovation while mitigating the risks for consumers, biz businesses, the broader financial system, and the climate. So all of it's pretty bullish until you get to that last bit, the climate. Uh, and I, you know, in this, in my mind, this climate fud is really the ultimate fud boss for Bitcoin. It does not seem to go away. And we recently also had a congressional hearing called Cleaning Up Cryptocurrency. Um, this one, it's so hard. It's an example of, of Brandolini's law. You know, that idea that, uh, you know, it's difficult to debunk false or misleading information, like exponentially harder to do that than it is to sort of put out there. Um, so I'll start with you, Yuri. Um, as an industry, what are we doing right now? And what should we do more of in order to combat this intractable narrative? Yeah, yeah, straight in the in the hard questions. <laughs> um, yeah, let's go. <laughs> I, uh, I think we we do need to engage more, and and that is that is what we are trying to do. I we think at Foundry that a lot of uh, commentary and errors that you are hearing from regulators or policymakers that they do stem from not understanding this space and. Um, them reading an article or two, some kind of FUD and, and crafting their narrative. So I don't think they're all coming from a uh, necessarily uh, malice or a bad place. It's just uh, uh, misinformation. And we do need to spend time, uh, engage, inform and, and educate them and, and engage in a dialogue. And so what, um, what we have done at Foundry and, and we are uh, based in New York. We're based in upstate New York in Rochester, arguably the most uh, non not a friendly state to, uh, uh, to our industry, starting from BitLicense and, and, and definitely around mining as well. And so we, that's our home and this is where we do, we are spending a lot of uh, efforts in, in New York uh, state specifically. Uh, we have recently hired director of public policy, who is an absolute rock star and, and um, really as a push of our efforts to engage more with, um, with policymakers. We work with various advocacy groups. We, um, through DCG, we have been as a group supporting various uh, uh, advocacy groups for, for some time, but we also felt that there's a need to um, focus a little bit more about proof of work and mining specifically. So Foundry has um, recently joined the Blockchain Association. We have joined the SET Center, and we will continue to support um, a lot of different efforts in the space to try to bring the our voice, the mining industry's voice, uh, to the table. Yeah, I saw, I saw that uh, I was on that first uh, SET Center call, which is sort of an answer to Coin Center as a public policy advocacy group a Bitcoin only version of Coin Center. And I'm really excited that Swan is also a part of it. I think it's very important, excited to hear that there's a public policy uh, staff now at Foundry. That's really important as well. I know Galaxy uh, has joined the Bitcoin Mining Council and another kind of similar group that's dedicated to fighting this, this FUD. Amanda, uh, your comments. 
Yeah, so I think that this has been a topic of conversation that has been quite annoying for much longer than the past year. So Yuri and I had worked together at Fidelity, like you said, and back in 2019, we put on a, a mining event basically to say the to talk about mining because no one was talking about it. And the only headlines were like, Bitcoin mining is going to consume all of the world's energy by 2022, right? Which is ridiculous and still not real. Um, so I think that narrative has been around for a while and there, there wasn't really a lot of larger groups like combating the narrative. But now that we have an influx of, you know, large public mining companies in the US, that there's a reason for that narrative to be shifted, right? Like it's it's important for their businesses to succeed. So there's more people stepping up to the plate and saying like, hey, this is actually really false. Um, the Bitcoin Mining Council, I know it was, there was a lot of strife around it when it first came out, but it's done exactly what we wanted it to do, which was people can join it, you can share your energy mix. And it shows that like, the data shows that Bitcoin mining is using more sustainable energy sources than any other industry. So there's something to be said with like correct data. And I think that that has been something that has come out over the past year, which we didn't have before. It's so like, Yuri, you have, you know, the foundry map, right? Where you show like, here's the distributed location of all of our miners, right? And you could kind of back into what is the, the general breakdown of energy, right? From those locations. You have the mining council, which does that. You had the report that Nick Carter and NIDIG put out last year. You have, you know, a lot of different sources of, of data now that is combating this FUD. And now it's just using that and like teaching the regulators the right narrative, right? Because they, they just see things on Newsweek and public, you know, like Wall Street Journal and Main Street Media that just doesn't get it. And it's our responsibility to teach them the right way. And I think this is something that you know, within the mining community, people disagree on. And I think it's probably good that we disagree on it because this there's a lot of different strategies. But I, I think that there is, you have to engage or else they're going to have the wrong narrative. The opposite is that you have people like groups like Ripple, right, that are like sponsoring different types of, um, you know, engagements that kind of shit on proof of work to pump their own bags. So I think it's important for us. And as like industry leaders, we have to engage or else the narrative is just going to be completely shifted from what's not real. Today, I learned that, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I just wanted to build on it because that's a good point uh, that Amanda mentioned is because, because Bitcoin is decentralized, there's no, well, uh, so we don't know who Satoshi is and he's not publicly present. Otherwise, he would be in the congressional hearings talking about uh, the network, right? There's no centralized company behind the protocol. And so while that's, you know, one of Bitcoin's biggest value proposition and why it's um, as important as it is, as big as it is, when it comes to this public discourse and, and countering some of these narratives, that is Bitcoin's problem, right? Uh, I, I do think that Going back to the education, I do think that regulators or policymakers, they're trying to understand this system and their typical approach is let me go to the centralized, you know, industry group and let me collect all the data. Let me introduce the key people I need to interview to get to the source of truth. And you cannot do that in Bitcoin, right? It is the centralized network and that's why it's valuable. And so through all these different efforts like a Bitcoin mining council, council or, or foundry asset pool, we are in a position to maybe work with uh, obviously not every single miner in the industry, but try to aggregate some of the data while respecting the privacy of the underlying miners to be able to publish um, some valuable data that would help understand what is actually uh, uh, going in the Bitcoin mining network. 
So, so I do think that all those different studies are valuable. And, and in fact, I think it's very, very good that there are different approaches coming to the same result. So um, I can speak to the foundry study that we've done um, where we um, analyze the or try to estimate the power consumption and energy uh, mix from, from our customers. And we, we concluded that more than 70% of power consumed is generated uh, from uh, low carbon energy sources. And I believe that, Amanda, you probably have the most recent numbers, but at least as of Q3, it was upwards of 50, 60% of the mining council found. And so I think it's really good that two independent studies are showing uh, similar findings. Yuri tweeted recently that Bitcoin mining technologies have increased their energy efficiency 40,000% since 2009. Can you talk about that trend a little bit and, and where it's heading now? Oh, I, did I tweet or retweet? I, I, I retweeted. <laughs> both, um, both still count, Yuri. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, so, so I, I think that the, the specific number would just be showing how the efficiency of ASIC chips that are converting energy or electricity into a hash and then later into Bitcoin, um, how much more efficient they got. And, and obviously, since the inception of ASICs, um, when we went from CPUs and GPUs to ASICs, it was orders and orders of magnitudes of improvements in the efficiency. And you can measure the efficiency unit of power that goes into the mining machine and unit of output uh, that comes out measured in, in terahashes. Um, and, and so that efficiency, that rate uh, has been improving by many folds. And right now we are seeing that um, the, the efficiency curve is plateauing slightly. There's still every new miner is achieving a certain efficiency, but definitely not uh, as much as it did in the past. Amanda, yeah, your I would, thoughts? Just, I would, I would yeah, add there, like, it seems like in your, we, we've talked about this multiple times before, but like in the past miners, like real competitive edge was really having the latest ASIC, right? Because there were so many efficiency gains at the beginning. And now there aren't that many because we're hitting up against Moore's law. And I think the really interesting part is going to be like innovations in the mine to get miners to that point where they can continue to use the machine that they have and leverage it longer term. So there's a lot of companies that are, have we're looking at immersion cooling um, in like a capacity that was more research based and now we see some of the larger miners like Riot and Argo saying, hey, we're going full speed ahead with immersion. And so that allows you to have like more lifespan of the actual machine. I think the other piece that kind of gets lost sometimes in translation, especially to regulators, and this is like a big topic in in, in on top of like the energy usage is the e-waste, right? Is I've heard that quite a bit mm -hmm. from people that don't understand um, the space. It's like, well, your goal is to get like the best machine, right? To get like the most hash. And yeah, like maybe that is true for some people, but I think there's also this like large secondary market that like has is booming, right? So you can still buy S9s, which were made five years ago and they still account for 28% of the network. So that whole narrative around like, well, miners are just going to like throw out the machines, right? That they have once the next machine comes available isn't really true. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the efficiency gains has been incredible. 
um, and, and super innovative, but I think we are getting to that like plateau point. And I think this will now switch to how are people using the machines to their advantage in a different way and being more innovative in their operational setup versus like just purchasing the next batch of machines. Yeah, Amanda, you mentioned the secondary market and I know Foundry has launched a secondary marketplace called Foundry X last year. Um, and from my understanding, it's a, it's a marketplace where buyers and sellers can be paired together. So can you tell us a little bit more about the marketplace, why you all built it, um, how it helps the industry to kind of solve this e-waste problem or at least mitigate it? Yes, absolutely. So yeah, we launched Foundry X um, officially in, in December of last year. And the idea is that it would bring more transparency and trust in how units are being um, procured and sold. Uh, we have developed a network of 200 plus buyers and sellers um, that, that we can help match. Um, that's the ideal state. Right now, it does operate more like a brokerage desk and Foundry is in, in, in the middle of, uh, of every deal, meaning we would be procuring uh, machines, whether it's directly from manufacturers, selling from existing Foundry inventory or from resellers and, and selling them to whoever uh, reaches out to us uh, who needs machines, but it's really um, along along those lines. Why even Foundry got started is to bring more uh, capital efficiency and trust and transparency in the in the Bitcoin mining industry, which I think we have come a long, long way. Um, but if you were in the industry even five years ago, it felt like an absolute uh, wild, wild west, uh, and, and definitely before companies like Galaxy or Foundry got into this space. Amanda and I have many, many, many <laughs> crazy, funny stories trying to work on Bitcoin mining uh, as fidelity um, as, as early as what was it, 15, 16, uh, when it truly was a wild, wild west. Yeah, it was it was really funny trying to talk to like fidelity to be like, hey, like we have to pay in Bitcoin for these invoices. If you don't pay for them right now, like the machines are going to go away. And like it was just like a hilarious conversation. You know, I think that that's one of you know the reasons why I think places like Galaxy and Foundry were really appealing to us, Yuri, right? Because like we were able to take away some of that red tape and still operate in a way that is like really um, institutional grade, right? Like I think we both recognize, and I don't want to speak for Yuri, so tell me if I'm wrong, but we both recognize that there's mining was the foundational component of Bitcoin and it needed to get better in order for like the adoption to happen. And so like we had been like working on this and like loving mining years ago when no one cared about it. Like it was always fascinating to me that we would go to places like, you know, large um, events and there'd be not a single panel on mining. It was just like absolutely fascinating to me. Um, and it, it has matured quite a bit with places like Galaxy and Foundry, right? Like now offering solutions like brokerage, right? And I think Ethan um, had, Ethan Vera from Luxor had a tweet that was like, or maybe it was Drew, um, that was like 2022 is going to be the year where everyone becomes a broker, right? <laughs> and like Foundry has created like that, that um, amazing like website that like allows people to see, see it transparently. But I think a lot of people do do brokering, right? And, and I think that that's like, you know, that's been around for a while. And having the progression to what Yuri and team has built is, has matured the industry a little bit, right? You don't have to go on a Telegram channel anymore and hope that the person isn't completely scamming you to buy machines on the secondary market. <laughs> so there's, you know, it has, we have matured quite a bit. I know we still have a way to go, but it's been fun to be, you know, part of the process to see like the beginning of like, you know, our journey at least in it and see how much it's changed in four years. 
Yeah, it is. It's really cool that Fidelity adopted Bitcoin in such a you know in such a way um, early on as a just a massive financial services company. Uh, it's it's really cool to me, and it's great to see people coming out of Fidelity and going moving to more dedicated public companies that are dedicated to Bitcoin mining. There's, I think now, uh, I think you tweeted it, Amanda, 16, maybe more at this point, uh, public, publicly traded Bitcoin. Yeah, at the beginning of last year, Nasdaq. there were two listed on NASDAQ. At the end of last year, there's 16 listed on NASDAQ. And I think Core then closed. I, I'm not, I haven't followed who else has closed. Um, so we're up to at least 17, which completely changes the landscape of how um, companies like Fidelity are looking at investing in the space. Yeah, it's so it's so funny because I do remember having conversations back in the day from an asset management standpoint when someone wanted to get exposure through public markets to mining industry, you would buy Intel stock or or, or something where you know the 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 revenue that Intel had at the time from mining sector it probably it was selling GPUs it was you know less than I don't know one percent half a percent whatever it is and right now that you have sixteen plus publicly traded miners, plus many other companies that are publicly traded and you could get exposure. It's, it's absolutely amazing to see the transformation in just a short period of time. I also thought yeah. it was pretty cool. Like one of the things that Yuri and I did was we worked internally on education. So similar to what you guys are doing here, right? With like packaging, like education for Bitcoin, like Yuri and I did a lot of that. And for me, like that was like the journey of like learning about Bitcoin and then deciding like what area I wanted to focus on. So I think Fidelity is a great place to to get that that going and I, I feel like it was like kind of glory years for us right um so it was it was fun and it was painful at times trying to do like something very weird it's such a large traditional like institution um but mm -hmm. you know it was a great launch pad for sure and made a lifelong friend out of it so i'm pretty happy oh and, and not to go down the memory lane but we did mention immersion and i do have to say that fidelity in a, in a weird way was a pioneer in immersion cooling and Amanda took the lead on that project where somehow she convinced Fidelity executives to actually put a um, submerged units um, in Fidelity's data center in the basement of the headquarters. And that was absolutely amazing that uh, we managed to do that. And back in the day, obviously, it was extremely, extremely expensive and it wasn't the way to mine and it wasn't also the way that Fidelity mined. But uh, like we said, definitely now technology has improved and costs have gone down and many companies are going that route. We told them two things. One, you could drink the fluid. Yeah. <laughs> and they believe <laughs> that is true. <laughs> I wouldn't suggest it, but you can drink it. I thought it was two, mineral oil. Yeah, it's like dialectic fluid. Uh, we we did bring one miner there who did taste it. Uh, he is an oil and gas guy. I'm not going to call him out <laughs> here, but he knows exactly who he is. Gotcha. Um, the other thing that was was hilarious, there was a fire at one point in the cafeteria and they thought everyone thought it was the mining <laughs> in the basement. <laughs> it wasn't. It was the salad bar, surprisingly. It was not like the emerging cooling mining, but we were the first people to get blamed for it. <laughs> like miners typically do. For any anything that happens, miners get blamed and proof of work. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, the, the miners take a lot of the flack uh, for the Bitcoin network. It's the main source of, of the FUD. Um, well, okay, Th this is great conversation because we're talking about like the convergence of Bitcoin mining on the United States over the past year, really. Uh, the great hash rate migration happened 
uh, you know, with Bitcoin miners coming from China to North America. It's one of the biggest stories of last year and one of the biggest stories in the history of Bitcoin, I would say. Um, Foundry became the largest mining pool and uh, it, it's been incredible to watch. So what are some of the takeaways from this whole migration uh, from, you know, the front row of watching all of this happen? Uh, we'll start with Amanda on this one. I mean, I think that we've learned from a lot of different press releases from companies like um, with issues that building is actually very difficult, right? Um, so like everyone comes out and says like, hey, I'm going to be the largest miner in the world. And luckily that narrative has kind of shifted a little bit, even though we still see that pop up sometimes. But, um, you know, I think that the, the real thing has been like we've seen delays on sites, right? We've seen people say that they're going to have a larger um, capacity than they actually can produce. So I think, you know, one thing that gets left out of mining is like building is actually very difficult and became even more difficult after COVID happened, right? With the delays in the supply chain and no one expected the China ban, right? I don't think that, at least I didn't, I didn't expect China to completely ban Bitcoin mining. But I think one of the things that I saw over the past year was, you know, Chinese miners, they were able to get up up and running relatively quickly compared to like us so i think that they expected to be able to come here and, and things be as quick as it was in china and that's just not the case um that's not the case for you know um reasons with code right like electrical code is a little bit different yuri and i had gone to a, a chinese mine and we were a little bit shocked by the builds versus like what we'd seen in america so there's a little bit more um diligence that's required for building in the us um, and I also think that with, like I said, with the supply chain um, delays, it became even more difficult and timeframes got even more pushed out. So I think last year there was this like, oh my God, how am I ever going to get ASICs, right? The ASIC supply chain was backed up. And I think that that's kind of subsided this year, right? And um, you'll see like the, in the secondary market, ASIC prices have begun to depress because there's an inflow of, of ASICs because everyone is delayed on building. So like the people that are focusing on building out their sites over the next year and like heads down focusing on that, I think will be in a really good shape by the end of this year. I, I absolutely agree. I would just add from also just a very macro level that this band showed how resilient Bitcoin is or Bitcoin mining is. We had China who was at a time, I believe, 60, 70 percent of the global hash rate, uh, you know, overnight banned Bitcoin pretty much. And, and we've had disruptions in the short term until the difficulty readjusted. But in a grand scheme, you could say that uh, Bitcoin uh, industry, Bitcoin mining industry was totally unaffected. And so I think this is very telling. I think it's showcasing the, the resilience of Bitcoin network. And it also should give a, a warning to people that we should constantly strive to decentralize further uh, hash rate across different jurisdictions. And, and, and on that note, we were all the miners in the United States, especially miners who were still plugged in, uh, they had, you know, outsized profits and margins and returns because the, the hash rate uh, dropped and definitely more proportional in the price itself. But uh, I, I don't think any true believers in Bitcoin and decentralization are happy um, or would be happy with the hash rate in the United States growing from now, I believe it's 30, 40 percent to, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80. And while if I had to pick one country where the 
hash rate would be centralized. If that's the state that it has to be, of course, I would pick um, United States because I do like that it's a federated system. I think different states will uh, have a totally different view on Bitcoin mining and will not all follow the same lead. But I do not want to see any single country having more than uh, 40, 50% of the global hash rate. Gary, that's a really good point. And we see we see that right coming in play. So like we think about like Texas, right, which I'm in right now, and it's like a great state for Bitcoin mining and it's adopting. And then there's New York, who's trying to, you know, continue on with that moratorium, right? And so it is like we as 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 Bitcoiners, we should want Bitcoin to be as decentralized as possible, right? Um, but agree with you hundred percent that like you know, it's very American of us to say this, but like if it has to be somewhere like awesome that it's here, but it should be in places that like are going to be welcoming and engaging and, you know, it, you know, part of the innovation. Um, yeah, it's a it was interesting. I didn't love when people were like, yes, like the majority is now in the U.S. It's like, well, that's like not kind of the point. Right. Like it should be decentralized. <laughs> and, and especially how it happened. Right. It's, we all kind of want, but it's I, I do feel very bad for Chinese miners. They're all entrepreneurs. Totally. They were running their facilities and it must be devastating. Like I cannot even imagine if a, imagine in the United States, if a re regulator tomorrow says you need to shut down all your equipment. Like it's very, it, it is extremely rewarding when you plug in, when you order your equipment, you wait many, many months, you build your facilities, you plug them in. When you start uh, hearing that- You talk to uh, 75 people at Fidelity, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yep. exactly. When you hear that sound of, um, of hashing it's very rewarding and, and just the fact you know the, the idea that you would need to shut it down and look for a new home is, is devastating so i definitely do feel bad for for chinese miners i do think that they're probably the most entrepreneurial people in the world and better than anyone they very quickly started finding solutions whether mm -hmm. some still in china some in kazakhstan russia all over the world they're extremely entrepreneurial and and and, and i think the reason why we saw such a quick recovery of Hashit is because Chinese are very entrepreneurial and solution oriented people. And they even were in China, right? Like they were shifting where they were every year. So they were going back and forth to right. find that oh, cheapest yeah. source of energy, right? So like it was just in them to be very like mobile yeah. and, and you know, be able to like get scrappy with it, which is like what was the backbone of the, the mining industry before we had all of these large public miners in the US, right? So like, I think that they they deserve like way more credit right than than i think that we've given them um but it is still like really difficult to pick up your stuff and move it somewhere else and yuri i think if i remember correctly when we were first plugging in machines we were so excited and we were calling it like it's like the heartbeat of the network right like you plug it in and it just like hums and you just like feel like the money being made and it feels like real yeah. good um but there is like if you haven't plugged in a machine like if there's just something that happens when you do it that is very very cool i think it is that anticipation right because you you're so excited you get everything in line and then it's there and it's exciting that's very cool yeah you can see it's kind of like the first time you spin up a node and you know you can mm -hmm. see blocks coming in and sinking on the network and stuff it might be it's a not as terrifying as self-custody but you know <laughs> that that is a that is a whole thing uh we are not we are not used to holding and being responsible for our own money we're used to outsourcing that and uh yeah that's something to get your head around for sure uh this conversation makes me think of max kaiser and jason lowry and some other people who talk about this 
you know, there's many layers to Bitcoin's game theory. And on the mining level, there's this, in, you know, I think it's already started this, you know, nations competing against each other for hash war, you know, for hash on the network. You see that the Bitcoin is already a global money. It's going to play an increasingly important role. I feel like we've pulled forward like 10 years over the past, like the response to COVID and the Russian invasion has really sped things up uh, on this game theory level. And so the idea is we'll have nations competing against one another. They'll see the United States getting 50% of the hash rate, and that will incentivize other countries to say, no, we're going to grab some of that so that we can you know, have a, a stake on the network. Um, what do you all think about how this plays out? I'm sure you've thought about you know, as a business strategy, from a business strategy perspective, about the way the geopolitical sort of implications of, of hash and mining. Uh, Yuri, you want to start on that one? Yeah. So we're definitely seeing, and you can see that in the United States specifically, right, how different states are responding differently to uh, Bitcoin mining. I do think that some of those incentives or openness to Bitcoin mining is coming for for different reasons. And I think those reasons are also going to be developing over time. You know, you have states like Texas that some of those values of liberty and freedom are, you know, part of the country and and, and they're very welcoming uh, uh, to anyone starting any entrepreneurial activity as long as it's legal and mining is absolutely legal. To So I think other states also just see it as a um, tax revenue base, more jobs, many other things. And, and that's where they're starting by saying, we have energy, you need energy, you're going to pay us for that energy, come on board, right? I think the maybe the reasons that are going to develop over time, and obviously one is what, what um, the, the narrative Bitcoin miners are trying to explain, how Bitcoin miners are also very or, or very beneficial to the grid and, and, and being integral part of uh, the stabilizing the grid. I think more more states have yet to realize that benefit inviting miners or in some cases maybe even subsidizing miners or creating environment for, for miners where it makes sense for them to come seeing that benefit. And I think the third phase would be what you alluded to where states are recognizing the value of Bitcoin, Bitcoin as an asset, Bitcoin as a decentralized asset and, and realizing that they also want to be part of the network. They want to have hash rate in the state itself as a way of protecting Bitcoin, protecting citizens uh, who hold Bitcoin and so on. And I, I don't think many states are there yet um, on, on that level of thinking. I guess this goes to like the point that we all love to say as Bitcoiners is like Bitcoin doesn't care, right? Like if you are a nation state mining Bitcoin, if you're an individual person in your backyard with a black box, right, from upstream data mining Bitcoin, Bitcoin doesn't care, really. And we saw that happen with the Chinese ban, right? So it gives me a little bit of hope that um, regardless of if, you know, nation state do try to adopt this as part of like their um, long term strategy, which we've seen happening right in El Salvador too. That's great, but like overall, it 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 shouldn't really affect how Bitcoin works, um, which is like ultimately the best game theory piece of Bitcoin is like it's still going to continue on. We're still going to use it how we want to, um, and it's still going to be for you know people in in different areas that might need access to finance finance that like 
we are looking at it differently than them. So the the beauty of Bitcoin is that you can there's you know you can use it however you want. Um, and the beauty of mining Bitcoin is you can mine Bitcoin however you want, right? So whether it's an like I said an individual person or a nation state, it I don't think it really it matters that much. Hot take there. I'm hungry, so. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, Yuri, we were talking about this a little bit before we went live about miner centralization. And a piece of that is centralization of the production of ASICs. And you know there are a few that are really producing them. Of course, it was dominated by Bitmain for so long. There's a few more producers now, um, TSMC, Samsung, et cetera. Uh, we've heard from Square, I guess Block, that they are going to start producing some ASICs. Blockstream recently bought an ASIC manufacturer. So we're starting to see some moves to uh, decentralize the space, at least a little bit. How is Why is that important, Yuri? And what do you see moving forward? Are we going to get even more chip manufacturers based in the United States? Do you see other parts of the world uh, spinning up foundries? Yeah, a great question, and I, and I would separate the the stack or the process of uh, making chips at the fab level, and then what we call manufacturers, which could uh, entail anything from actually designing the chip that's being printed and then assembling the unit into the final product. And I do think that greater centralization is at a chip fabrication level. Uh, the, the and, and that is not just the case for Bitcoin ASIC chips. I think that generally the world is very centralized in a couple of fabs that are making all kinds of semiconductor um, uh, uh, chips that that we use in in any electronics that we have, right? And 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 I and I think first point there is that with COVID, with um, you know, even with the with the war uh, on, on Russia and Ukraine, I think that the world is uh, realizing that maybe even for na uh, national security issues, there is need to bringing some of the, those functions, um, so to speak, in house. Right, and the United States uh, has been taking some of those actions. So that's one point on the on the on the fab level, and and in the Bitcoin mining space, the biggest fabs are um, TSMC and Samsung, like you said, and, and the Chinese MIC is, uh, I believe, the, the third largest. The, then we get into the manufacturing decentralization or the number of different manufacturers that we have. And this is where I would, you know, you, you would put Bitmain and MicroBT and Canon and Bitfury and many others in that camp with Bitmain and MicroBT uh, having the largest market share. And so if I look at that space, it's definitely still very centralized. And I think it's good for the industry to have new entrants come, come into the space and with, with you know, simple economics one-on-one, more competition is in the end going to reduce prices, improve processes, bring efficiencies, and ultimately it's better for the consumer, in this case for Bitcoin miner, and, and therefore better for uh, Bitcoin mining industry and the ecosystem. So... Um, Finally, I think the reason why we have not seen many entrants or disruptors to Bitmain and MicroBT historically is because the it, it's it's very expensive and capital expensive um, business, 
And not to say that there aren't great chip manufacturers or designers around the world, right? It's just the, the pace at which new chips are coming online were at 18 or so months. And so if you were to get into this game, you would have to count, you know, your first chip, you're still learning. Um, your first chip is not going to be the market leader. So you need to count it by your second or third try, which could take a couple of years. Only then you will be competitive on the market and, and uh, you know, being able to collect some fruits of your labor. And, and in, in, a, in a very, um, for, for startups, that's very expensive. For large companies like Intel and others, maybe the ecosystem was too small at a time and it was actually not meaningful for them. And I think we're now reaching the point where the pace of, innovation or efficiency improvement is slowing down. And that means that the new chip from Bitmain or the new chip from MicroBT is gonna um, be slowing down how how much better it is as compared to the last generation. And what that's um, slowing down enables is for others to catch up. And, and, and I do expect that in the coming years, we're gonna see thankfully a lot more manufacturers in this space. So a few things there to react to. Um, one, I think, um, Yuri, you brought up a really interesting point about the national security um, issue for bringing chips in-house and like just going to like a very high macro level. It's really interesting how the two things that are brought up with recent news is energy and chips, right, which are like the foundation to creating like a good Bitcoin mining facility or company. So it's just, you know, it, it goes back, back to like the fundamentals of like what you need like to be prosperous and like, you know, energy and and some types of chips are now in every single thing that we use. So I want to break down like the, the ASIC manufacturing industry because you bring up a good point, right? It's it's very centralized, um, starting to get less centralized. There's two main foundries that are currently producing chips at scale. There's TSMC and Samsung. TSMC works with Bitmain mainly um, and Samsung works with MicroBT. So those are like the two largest ASIC manufacturers, right? Um, they are, are based in different locations, which is generally good for us. So TSMC is obviously based in Taiwan. Samsung is based in Korea. From like a geopolitical perspective, that is something that I think of um, just because if something was to happen in Taiwan, right, you also now can have machines or, or just chips specifically from Korea. Um, those two foundries, like Yuri was saying, produce chips not just for Bitcoin mining, but for all of the, the things that we know, right, your car, your cell phone, your computer, everything that you touch, your smart TV, your smart phone, right? Like everything is, is created there. Um, and the thing that I found was really interesting is like each individual node, right? Is, is like a, a large, um, basically like a, a, a large, like, I don't know, like manufacturing piece, right? Like, and there's only two companies in the world that make that, like that device. So it's like super centralized, right? So it's not just like Yuri was saying for Bitcoin miners and for the ASIC machines that like we all love and need. It's beyond that, right? Like the centralization of this space. So having, you know, Intel in the mix, um, whether it's like, you know, the best class, best in class machine or one class less than the best in class machine, like I think it's net good for Bitcoin miners. Also, when we think about purchasing machines, which is like not something that is talked about beyond secondary market, the primary market is like not that clear. You you sign a contract, right? You agree to a price. Sometimes that price changes um, based on like market conditions. You don't have a lot of insight into like what's happening or what's going on or what other people are paying for. So the increase of more ASIC manufacturers will, I think, make the industry a little bit more mature 
Um, we've come a, a, a little bit of a way, right, from like a few years ago with now you have contracts, right, that are you are obligated to certain things. Um, but I, I still think there's like a long way to go. So companies like Blockstream with buying Spondulis and working on on that, um, companies like Square getting into this, companies like Intel um, now backing, you know, this this industry itself is, is net good. Um, just because I, I think that it will increase like the um, professionalism of the space and allow for it to really turn into an industry that is like others with a little bit more transparency. And that was a good point, Amanda. Um, what Amanda mentioned with the big notes is pretty much that the the manufacturers of equipment that is used to make chips that is then sold to uh, TSMC and Samsung and, and are are not produced by them. They're they're produced, and I believe Amanda that it's um, European or or um, Scandinavian uh, uh, companies, right? One or two that produces that very specialized equipment. And I, for, for me, it's you know I I start thinking as we've all experienced the the craziness the world over the last five years. You do start to think. Uh, you know, back to economics 101 and trading 101, where you're taught in school that specialization is good and, and trading is good. And if I if I am really, really good and efficient at making shoes and Amanda is really, really good at making, producing bananas, we're going to both specialize in what we're good at and then trade. And then in the end, we are both better off because we're going to more cheaply produce more shoes and more uh, bananas and we're both going to enjoy more abundant uh, uh, life after trade. But what some of those models did not take into account is the risk of us turning against each other and not trade trading with um, with each other anymore. And, and, and I think we should examine some of these dependencies across the world. Uh, like Amanda mentioned, energy. We have seen now that a lot of world is depending on Russia on energy. And you better make sure that your trading partner is your friend because if you turn on them or they turn on you, you will need to find another way to procure whatever good you need. And, you know, in some cases, if it's if it's a good that uh, you can live without or you can quickly uh, substitute with some something else, maybe it's not a big problem. But if we are talking about energy or if we are talking about chips that go in pretty much every single thing that we need, um, then it's a problem. I mean, even if you try to, I don't know if I, I've tried to buy a car in the last uh, uh, year and it's not very easy to uh, buy a new car these days. So it's definitely uh, uh, going to impact a lot of areas uh, of our life. So I have some more questions that are kind of sent around decentralization actually that have popped up. Uh, first one is, Amanda, I saw that Galaxy has been putting out some research on the upgrade to the Stratum protocol. Yeah. Um, I would love for you to just to summarize what it is for our listeners and then oh, man. That is talk a tough about, one. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's basically a, like a messaging protocol, right? The minor. Yeah. So I can, I can give some like general background, right? Okay. But we'd need Rachel here to dive into like the real technical. Yes, just some general background. It. And then um, if you want to, we can talk about maybe some of the downsides and uh, better hash, you know, which is a, a kind of alternative proposal for to Stratum, which would mitigate some certain attack vectors that Stratum has. Yeah, so um, better hash is is folded into a lot of Stratum v two, awesome. as I understand it, which is great. Um, I know you know Macarello really led the way with that, um, and I think it's really important. 
if we think about um, Bitcoin and, and what has happened with hash rate over the past, like, you know, 13 years, there was, you know, Stratum V1 came out um, as a protocol when Bitcoin hash rate was really low. And we really needed a new upgraded protocol about like four years ago. Um, but we're still using Stratum V1. So I think that that's like a one thing that is like we're, we're far beyond the point of us like needing something new. Um, and I love that we're working on it. Right. So Rachel, who's on um, the mining team, she de dedicates a lot of her time to open source development, which like is not really I don't think talked about or right? like Galaxy does a lot of different things. But we also have a person dedicated to open source development on Bitcoin, which, you know, is is like a fascinating topic to think about when you think about large companies. Right. Um, now trying to think about what they need and, and how they can support like the protocols. Um, but Stratum V2 will allow for um, more flexibility for miners. So one thing that I think is really cool that doesn't exist today is right now when you um, when a block is assembled, that block is assembled by the pool versus the individual miner. So they select what transactions go inside the block. Um, with Stratum V2, you would be able to select the transactions that go inside the block. And I think that that's something that's you know really cool um, and, and new. So you know, over time, that could be used in good ways or bad ways. So for example, if you are a large company, right, that say you're a custodian, that you want to be able to prioritize your clients' transactions over somebody else, like you technically could do that in Stratum V2. And it's not against the rules, right? But it is something that we'll, we'll see, like, you know, with all technology, when it continues to increase, like good things and bad things might come out of it. Yeah, that, that's a really important point. Um, that, and that's cool. That was the main idea behind better hash. And so I didn't know that that main idea was like folded into stratum V2. So it does, there's this idea of centralization of, of choosing what transactions go into a block in a pool with stratum V1. And historically speaking, all the transactions were chosen by one node that represented that pool. As far as I understand it with, with V2, then the individual miners. So if I have a few ASICs and I happen to discover that block, then I, uh, my node gets to decide with its you know, block template which transactions go into the block. Uh, so that does decentralize that decision-making a little bit, which is cool. I also, you know, one thing that's kind of interesting is there's a few people working on Stratum V2. Um, so there's, you know, the adoption that Slashpool has created where they individually put Stratum V2 on miners. And then there's this other body of work and Rachel breaks this all down in, in, in the, um, in the long, um, the long blog post, um, there's, you know, a group with Bitmax Square and Galaxy that are also working on Stratum V2, right? So I, I think one of the other pieces that I, I thought was kind of fascinating when you're thinking about protocol upgrades is just like the relationship between miners and devs and users. Um, and that's, you know, something that she breaks down. So I, I would encourage anyone interested in Stratum V2 to really take a, a look at it. She um, goes through all of the different pieces of it, which is like a really in-depth look of like the differences of Stratum V1 and V2 and like what V2 will do differently. Yeah, it's, just, it's absolutely fantastic yep. report, like almost every that uh, Galaxy publishes. So if you, if you know nothing about Stratum V2 and if you want to get a history lesson and deep technical and high level explanation uh definitely read the report um i i, I definitely learned a, a lot about it myself and Same. i would just add to that it, it does from what i learned from the report itself it does bring uh, uh also some benefits on a technical level from its more efficient protocol that's more optimized for the you know large-scale operations that we have today 
um, it does bring some security benefits. And, and you know, if we, if we look at giving power to the users or individual miners to construct their own blocks, I think that's very positive thing, right? And it further goes along, uh, you know, it decentralizes further the power, um, however you define that power, which aspect of that power you look at the Bitcoin network. And certainly as, as the largest pool on the network, we are, we, we know that we as a pool would also play a big part of, of um, you know, um, putting Stratum V2 into, into mainstream or into production. And so we, we as Foundry are, it's very, very well aligned with our values around decentralization. So we would definitely be pushing it um, to any, any users that want to be constructing their own, uh, their, their own blocks uh, or block templates. And, um, and obviously there's also a reliance on firmware of manufacturers to, uh, to adopt it. So there's another kind of component where uh, you would need to see, you would need to see a push. What's the other thing that we are looking from, from a perspective of a pool operator in Stratum V2, there are certain things that we have to consider um, uh, certain then dynamic that potentially changes when you do give a miner ability to construct their own block. And, and it is an edge case. It is a case, for example, let's say a miner is mining empty blocks, or let's say a miner themselves is not fully optimizing the uh, transactions that are bringing the most revenue. Well, that revenue, at least in the FPPS pool, is the foregone revenue for the pool operator, right? And so if the pool operator is committing to pay certain amount of Bitcoin um, out to the miners, no matter what blocks are fine, you're definitely hurt if then the blocks that you do end up mining are not maximizing that revenue, right? So that's that's a, uh, one example of a component that we would need to look into and find a solution to um, uh, before uh, fully adopting. But nonetheless, none of these issues are unsolvable and and i'm sure when the stratum v2 is live that we would be making a big push for it you know one thing that we really really wanted was stratum v2 to be put on like if we firmware on an asic right let's start there is kind of interesting because it's closed sourced so you don't really you have to ask like the manufacturers for certain things like if you want to update something and then you also like completely give away your warranty right if it's a new machine so one thing that would be really cool and um we've we've started these conversations is like if we were to write stratum v2 code that could work can a manufacturer just like instantly put it on right the machine so stratum v2 is then on every single mining machine that you purchase like now and in the future and i think that that would really like help with adoption um but you know there's no incentive for the manufacturers to really do that other than like users saying like i want it um, and I don't think that we're there yet with Stratum V2. So I think that it's a long way coming. I also think that if we're being realistic, we're probably like two to three years out of Stratum V2 like actually being operable. That's what I love about Bitcoin devs. They take their time, get everything tested and treat it like right. nuclear power plant <laughs> operating systems or something. Yeah. Uh, so yeah I, I think a lot of people don't realize that there's this separate protocol that's outside of the bitcoin protocol that miners use to speak to each other you know to broadcast the discovery of blocks in fractions of a second around the world uh to minimize you know orphaned blocks etc there's so there's a whole other world there that's really interesting to explore if you haven't yet about how uh, the the stratum protocol and just how bitcoin miners talk to each other and 
solve some of the problems that um, the Bitcoin protocol itself may have uh, presented in, in the early days. Um, I want to ask a quick question. I'm going to save a couple of these for the spaces Q&A. But Amanda, uh, you've spoken in the past about providing miners with financial derivatives, you know, financial products and derivatives. I think you call it MiFi. Yeah, so MiFi is like a very a very broad term. Um, it was kind of like a little coy play on uh, on DeFi. Um, right. <laughs> I can't say that I came up with that though. Our president Chris came up with it. Um, but minor finances is, is like broad, right? Like we do ASIC backed loans. We do um, you know Bitcoin backed loans. We do any type of loan that you need. Basically, as a miner, we do hash rate uh, not hash rate derivatives. We can do know, Bitcoin-based derivatives. Um, we do credit facilities, credit lines, right? So I think one of the things that is really interesting for miners, especially the larger ones that are now, you know, trying to figure out how they separate themselves out from other large miners, um, is having a really strong treasury management strategy. And up until this point, like miners really have focused a lot on building versus like thinking about, you know, how do we, how do we, think about how we use this Bitcoin that we produce like to our best advantage to continue to scale and grow. And so, you know, Yuri also Foundry does minor finance and other products too, um, with in collaboration with Genesis. But, you know, I think that there is a lot of different things that miners need from a finance perspective. And we try to create these like really bespoke solutions. So I like we mine Bitcoin, right? I, I know what I would accept and what I wouldn't accept from like a, a financing company. So I try to really be like a minor friendly product creator um, and and think, think about like where a miner is in their stage of their process and like what they might need now, what they me might need from a financing perspective in the future and like really try to help them build solutions to help them scale and grow. So that's generally what MiFi is. Um, it's not as, as um, well, I would say we don't rug pull people like DeFi does, but <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. All right. We'll move over to spaces. I know there's some people over there listening in cool. and we'll do some Q&A. So if you are listening over on spaces, get your mining questions ready for these two. It's a great opportunity to have your questions. I know you, you know, mining is probably one of the least understood aspects of Bitcoin for a lot of newish Bitcoiners. And so get your mining questions ready and we'll see you over there, Amanda and Yuri. Sounds good. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, uh, that ends the live video broadcast portion of the show. Again, we're going over to Twitter Spaces at Swan Bitcoin, or just look at the top of your Twitter app. If you're following Swan, you'll see it pop up there. Next week, we have another back. To, we have a back-to-back -back week. We're not taking uh, two weeks off on this one. Uh, so we have Austin Hill and Jeff Booth next week. Austin Hill is co-founder of Blockstream. Uh, he's on to bigger. Well. He's on to something different. I won't say bigger and better. Blockstream is pretty hard to top. But uh, Austin Hill, amazing Bitcoiner, tons of knowledge, tons of experience, along with Jeff Booth. That's going to be a great co uh, combination. Uh, Peter McCormick on what Bitcoin did had these two on last month. And there's just so much more to the conversation to have that uh, we wanted to have a follow-up. And then at the end of March, it's the end of Q1. So that means it's time for the quarterly report with Preston Pish and Andy Edstrom. Those are always super fun shows. That one's going to be on Wednesday, March 30th at 9 p.m. Eastern and 6 p.m. Pacific. It's a primetime show. It's always fun to do those at the end of the day. So join us for Austin Hill and Jeff Booth next week and then Preston Pish and Andy Edstrom 
on Wednesday the 30th, right before, the week before the big Bitcoin conference in Miami. If you are not, if you have not bought a ticket yet, you need to really consider it. I know it's an expensive trip for a lot of people to fly down there, find a hotel room, pay for the ticket and all of that. 30,000 Bitcoiners are going to be there. It's going to be massive. Well, 30,000 people are going to be there. A lot of them will be Bitcoiners. And uh, we're all going to hang out and meet each other in real life, get off of Twitter for a few days. And I've been to a couple of these now, and they've been instrumental parts of my Bitcoin experience and my Bitcoin career. So if you're thinking about trying to get into the Bitcoin space, especially with uh, with a job or a career move, then get down to Miami and be there and network and hang out. You will not regret it. It is a ton of fun right on the beach. It's going to be amazing. All right. We're, I'm going to head over to Twitter Spaces and meet up with Amanda and Yuri there and everybody hanging out there. This is the end of the video portion of the show. We'll see you over in Spaces. Hi there. Um, I don't, I don't so, know. Yeah. If we could, if we could talk a little bit more about me, that would be cool. Oh yeah, Hi, my favorite topic. <laughs> um, no, that was really interesting. And you know, one, one thing about mining that I was uh, really fascinated by a few weeks ago, there were um, some like ordinary home miners uh, who found the whole block, right? Um, what What do you think happened there? And like, there were a few in a row that um, somebody, you know, just at home with one miner found like uh, 10 Bitcoin or six Bitcoin. And so um, where do you see that future for the home miner rather than I know all these big um, nation states and giant publicly listed companies are, are mining, but uh, I may have missed it. But did you talk about that? We didn't talk about it. It's a really cool concept. And I think that's one of like the best things about Bitcoin, right? Is that like, it's just kind of like, some of it is luck based, right? And it depends on like the type of pool that you're in and the pool payout that you have. But I loved that it was like three, I think it was three, and Yuri, correct me if I'm wrong, but three different home miners over the course of like 10 days. Yeah, I, I haven't calculated the probability of that, but if a single one at this scale is very unlikely, three in, in a row or in that short period of time is extremely, extremely unlikely. So it's either a home miner, home miner or a home miner with a quantum computing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, the keyword. Um, but it is, it's one of, the, I think there's been a rise in home mining. And I don't know if it's because, like, I'm a huge fan of Steve Barber and what he's building up at Upstream Data. But the, the stuff that he's been doing is, like, making home mining more accessible to everyone. So curious to see that trend and, like, how it continues to increase. Like, you have this, like, trend of these large mining companies, right? Um growing and expanding in like these massive like data centers. And then you have like this rise of this home miner. Um, and, and I think it's like, it's amazing that in Bitcoin you could have both. Yeah. I'm, I'm a very big man, uh, a very big fan of home mining and obviously foundry foundry is serving institutional space. So we are not in that space, but I, I do support it greatly. And I do think there's many reasons or, or many value proposition why you could push for or advocate for home mining. And what I'm not a big advocate for, I don't like when it's uh, positioned as it's a way to make a lot of money and a lot of money quickly. I do think that a lot of home miners or, 
you know, retail investors who think that they will be seeing outsized returns if they buy this expensive machine and plug it in for a long time, I do think that they will get hurt. Because if you buy uh, expensive machine at the top of the cycle um, and Bitcoin price crashes and hash and network difficulty continues to rise, you will not pay back your equipment in 12 to 15 months. It could take much, much longer. And it's also possible that you will never uh, pay it back. But... I, I do think that there are other reasons why uh, one may want to home mine. I, I think um, a, a lot of miners do feel like they're supporting and protecting Bitcoin. And that's one of the reasons or the second reasons why they're doing it. I also do think that um, it, 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 it's a way also to... Um, you, you can position it, like you said, a lot of people like... If you position it as a lottery, hey... You will not make any money, but you could mine a block. Um, I, I think a lot of a lot of uh, uh, retail w- would be very interested in that. And and um, I, know, I know that people were experimenting with other home devices that you can put into your house. You know, you can have really expensive toaster or a lamp or a space heater. Um, I, I I think with those because those are uh, uh, you know consumer products. I think they just end up being very expensive consumer products, and I'm a bigger fan of uh, the approach. What like Amanda you said, upstream data is doing by actually developing more efficient solutions that go in your backyard, and and, and you can actually be a more efficient Bitcoin miner. The other piece I, I, of it too. Uh, oh, so, sorry, Stacey. The other piece of it too is you can K, like it's non KYC Bitcoin. That's what like, I was just going to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like it's like that's pretty cool. Um, so I think that like, even if you're not going to make a ton of money today, if you're long Bitcoin, and I think we all are, especially as miners, and you think that the price is just going to appreciate, like, you might not lose money if you just hold it over time. Yeah, I think that has been very um, important message delivered through actions globally, geopolitically in the last few weeks. Um, The importance of being able to uh, actually mine your own Bitcoin or have non-KYC uh, Bitcoin. Um, but I, I also wanted to um, ask about um, with the uh, also the heating element. I, I've had a lot of people in our Orange Bowl podcast telegram group talking about their, heating their homes with their miners <laughs> lately. I'm in this home mining wizard chat on telegram. And a lot of people, I'm kind of just like a lurker there because I'm just impressed by what everyone is doing at like an individual level. And there are like a lot of people that are using mining to heat certain areas, right? I think one of the most interesting ideas was a couple years ago, um, Yuri and I's friend Jesse made a hot tub that was heated by miners. So <laughs> I feel like we'll see a lot more stuff come out um, around that. But it's, it is pretty cool to think about like utilizing the heat in a way that um, could be useful for some other capacity, whether it's at home or, you know, at an industrial scale. Yeah, I even um, I saw somebody who was pumping the heat into a greenhouse and selling flowers. So when you talk about like efficiencies and innovation going on in the operations of the mining, you know, that's what kind of I start thinking about how to reuse that heat. It's really interesting to see this progression. You know, of course, Bitcoin mining started out as all home mining, you know, people just using CPUs and then GPUs. And Satoshi 
wrote about this and predicted the industrialization of mining, which is pretty cool. Um, and then, and now we're seeing, especially, I mean, it was really spurred, in, I guess, by hash rate plummeting when everyone left, or when all the miners left China, and price just continued to rise, despite it. So there was a big kind of arbitrage or opportunity, kind of historic opportunity. Uh, and so I think a lot of home miners spun up um, ASICs at that point. So do you guys think that that trend can continue, or if that spread between price and hash rate uh, continues to close that that'll squeeze out home miners. I think it goes back to Yuri's point, right? Like it might not be, it might not be something that is super lucrative, but it depends on how you think about it. Look, I think that over the past year, a lot of people got into mining and they paid a ridiculous amount for machines and they are probably paying like a really high hosting rate for electricity. And that is one of the great things about mining is that over time, as you know, the, the network changes, the people who, don't have the best setup will be the ones that will get squeezed out first, right? So whether that's like an individual miner, and that's where like the piece of, of what I said, when it's like, well, it's how, kind of how you think about it, right? If you think that it's not about like you paying more for electricity in your house, because you want to get that Bitcoin, um, and you want to hold on to it, because it's non KYC Bitcoin that you think will value and, and be valued higher later on, then like, maybe it's worth it, even if you're losing money. Um, but I think that a lot of people jumped into it. And I think a lot of people jumped into it last year because not so much about just like the, the, the dynamics, but I think there's more services available to people, right? We saw Compass come out. Um, we saw River come out. We saw, you know, Steve Barber come out with individual black boxes, right? So I think it's becoming more accessible, whereas like before it was is really inaccessible to understand or even try to do mining at your house. And and we should also not underestimate the the power of the masses, right? Like if you had a a big mining farm with hundred thousand of new gen machines, that's a really 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 big um, mining farm. And then you just look at oh, you only need hundred thousand people or bitcoiners around the world who want to run one machine at the home, or if they're running only two machines at the home, you only need fifty thousand uh, people. So I do think that if this proliferates as an idea for people to mine at home where um, they're not necessarily initially immediately profit driven by but it's a no kyc bitcoin or supporting the network in in, in other ways i do think that uh, home mining could become a um, meaningful part of the bitcoin mining network i do not think that it, it would ever become the majority of the mining network but i do i do think that it can become a meaningful part of the network Awesome. Let's go to Nate. Um, hey guys, I just have one quick question. That's I. I was working on a on a PG&E hydro site with a, for a contractor, and there's a screaming good opportunity to bring in mining. But I don't. I can't get the ear of anybody within PG&E who could who could do that. Just I mean, this being an energy topic, does anybody in here uh, have any good contacts at PG&E who could have that conversation? I don't think I do, um, but we have like a whole team that d is dedicated to mining. So could be someone that else that has talked, I can ask. Yeah, I mean, if that would be awesome because it feels, it feels like a streaming good opportunity. And if there's any way I could, you know, I've, I've dead-ended all the, all the people I thought of. So anybody could help me get one of those contacts, that'd be awesome. That's, that's all I got. You can, you can, you can take me off the panel. 
All right, thanks, Nate. If anybody listening in the audience, how about Nate DM and All right. Decode. What's up, everyone? <clears throat> um, so on the topic of uh, energy, obviously this is um, an energy crisis around the world and a financial crisis around the world. And like tying it all back to how how can one go about starting a business while getting energy at a discount from the government somehow? So sourcing, you know, it's it's a complicated question, right? I think sourcing energy, people have a lot of different strategies and it depends on, you know, what like size you're looking for and where you're looking and, you know, what type of energy you're looking for, right? So that that's like a, there's like a whole path that you can go where you can think about like energy sourcing. And there's companies that also do that, right? As like their main bread and butter that could help you like source like the size and that you want. Um, and then there's a whole like, well, how do you set up the operation in this type of location based on like the where I was able to find energy? So, you know, that's like a, a huge process to undertake. And everyone, a lot of people have done it, right? So I, I have faith that you'll be able to do it. But it's a matter of like, how do you start to get started? Um, I would look into some of like the public mining filings to see like how they sourced energy is like a, a, a first starting point um, to think about like, what are the areas or like, how do you get you know, in on the energy side, the energy is definitely a really important component. Yuri, okay, I don't know if you. Have... Yeah, yeah, that answered my question. Good. Okay. And I, I would just add, you know, there's always newcomers trying to start, start um, at various sides uh, parts of the cycle, and it does sometimes feel like. I better get this right in the next three months or or the window of opportunity is closing. And definitely, if you look at the mining cycles, it may feel like that. But it's also important to zoom out and, and say, Bitcoin mining is not going anywhere. Bitcoin is not going anywhere. So, um, you know, I encourage everyone who is looking to get into mining, it don't start with ideas of, you know, hundreds of megawatts and you need to be the bigger miner in, in, in America. Like sometimes it's useful to start at home in your backyard with a couple of machines and then you light it and then you find a, you know, abandoned warehouse and procure some cheap energy and you start expanding. And just over time, you build, you, you build relationship and experience and you will be able to, uh, you know, catch the next uh, bull market. And if anything, it's good to start those R&D uh, initial pilot projects uh, in the bear market where my, mining economics are not great because you will be able to cheaply procure uh, equipment and the mistakes you make and you will inevitably make mistakes because everyone does it when you're just starting to do uh, those mistakes will be cheaper so um, and in a, in a you know when people feel like oh I'm too late to the game it, 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 it's um, it's never too late because if, if that's the starting point that just means that you know the mining players that are now here that they're the ones who will also be running the network over next 15 20 hundred years and that's that's not the case. I think there's going to be a lot of newcomers and, and the learning curve is steep, but uh, there's absolutely time to time to learn. So we are we are at the end of our scheduled time. Uh, we were going one to three. So if Yuri or Amanda, if you guys have to jump for another meeting or something, 
go for it. Uh, let you close up. If you want to stay on 15, 20 minutes, we can talk a little bit longer, but it's up to you guys. I can do 15 minutes. I can do the same. I have to jump. Okay, perfect. Um, I have a question for you. And anybody in the audience would like to take advantage of this extra 15 minutes we have, please make a request to come up and speak. If you've never done it before, it's really easy. Just come up and ask a question. You'll get an answer, uh, and it'll be fun. So my question to you both is, uh, you know, a lot of people here in the audience are the Bitcoin, the person who knows about Bitcoin in their friends and family's life, co-workers' life. And of course, you know, we all get questions. And often one of the main questions is about Bitcoin and energy usage. So I'll take on Amanda first. If you had like two minutes to dispel that concern to uh, someone new to Bitcoin, the concern about energy and climate, et cetera, um, what would you say? I would talk about how every industry uses energy and energy usage in itself is not a bad thing. Um, you know, we need energy to do every single thing that we do, even like within our own bodies. And I would probably suggest that they read Energy and Civilization because it will kind of change your mind on how you think about energy more broadly um, beyond just like Bitcoin mining. I think that, um, you know, it comes down to utility, really. Like, do you think that Bitcoin is useful? If you think that Bitcoin is useful, then any amount of energy spent on it is okay. If you think that Bitcoin isn't useful, then you're never going to agree that any energy is spent on it, it is okay. And I think that goes into like other things too, right? Like you might think that something like, you know, Netflix is not a useful source of energy, right? And and that is just fundamentally like what utility is and how people feel about that certain thing. If you think that, you know, the future of money that is, is something that anyone around the world could use without like the centralized government is not useful, then we're just probably not going to be able to have like a constructive conversation around it. So it's a matter of like, it's not just the use of energy. It's the, like the utility of Bitcoin and starting there and, and Bitcoin uses energy. Yes. But so does every single other thing that we do. That's great. Yuri. That was, that was an amazing pitch and I have very little to add. I would just, um, I would say that, people have a totally wrong um, conception that energy is a limited resource and we have to be careful what we use it for or how we use it. And in fact, we have infinite amount of energy resources, right? We do not have infinite amount of energy, but we have an infinite amount of energy resources. And all we have to do is put efforts into create, uh, converting those energy resources into useful energy that then we use for whatever we want to use. And so going back to what Amanda said, we just need to make sure that that energy that we produce is cheap, reliable, and abundant, and we can use it for whatever we want. And, and historically, the more energy we use, the, the better prosperity we will have. And so that's kind of the, the concept that people don't get. And they I think they were taught to be scared about energy consumption or they think it's a this limited resource that um, we're going to run out of. Um, I, I was recently reading a book that even even said for fossil fuels that we have enough fossil fuels for the next three, four thousand years, right? And it can be that we are so concerned about 
future human in 4,000 years being on Earth and, and not having any energy, right? So it's it just, uh, we just need to educate people more. And, and, and for me, is what I realized when I started learning about Bitcoin, like many other people, you actually realize we don't know what money is and we don't know how money works. And, and it's an eye-opening kind of educational journey that you go through. And this all also made me realize that we don't know what energy is or how energy is produced, what it means. And like money, energy is everywhere and we need it every single day and we just don't understand it. And uh, so I would just encourage everyone to be open-minded and actually go down the journey of of uh, learning and understanding it. And, and don't listen to the headlines and narratives. They're carefully crafted. And um, yeah, and uh, do your own research and make your own opinions. Yeah, 100% cosine. And we are getting more and more educational content produced. It's like a high produ production value. Uh, Swan was involved in one called This Machine Greens. That's about how Bitcoin actually incentivizes the increasing efficiency of the power grid and the production of efficient uh, power of, of all kinds. Um, so it's pretty cool. It's on the Swan YouTube channel this machine green so you should check it out it's a good one to share with family and friends who are who are interested it kind of really flips those uh assumptions on their head in about 30 minutes uh the mayan you're up on the stage would you like to ask a question or make a comment you'll have to unmute your mic Step back down. All right, Sam, you have a question? Yeah. Um, you know, back when COVID started, there was a lot of obviously like supply chain issues and there was notoriously like long delays for ASIC miners. And one example is like Marathon, I know, bought like 70,000 ASICs back in like December 2020. And I believe they're still like getting those uh, online. So, uh, what I'm wondering is, is like, are those delays still there? Or like, do you guys have any kind of, you know, knowledge of um, what those delays are right now? Is it still like 18 months? I think it depends on, you know, when you, like, when you have your contract, I think, you know, the, we saw a, a large increase on shipping prices and costs of shipping. So sometimes, you know, there's, there's that piece that you have to play into. And also um, the amount of, the amount of flights out of the locations that you purchase machines at have decreased since COVID. So it makes like that, you know, it, it's becoming more competitive to get your machines moving. Um, I'll give you like a, a, a fun number and fact. At the beginning of last year, we were targeting like $150 like at our top for like per machine for shipping. And we do like a white glove shipping situation, right? We have like a broker, we're a broker on record, all of that great stuff. And at the end of last year, we were seeing upwards of $500 per machine. So the the constraints on the supply chain like are real um, and, and definitely, you know, not just for the ASIC side. You also see supply chain issues with, you know, large electrical infrastructure like transformers. And, you know, it's not it's both sides of the of the play that you need for mining. So I think that um, I'm not sure Marathon's situation. Um, but I think that, you know, you will see delays with ASICs, but then also with like building. And this goes back to what Yuri and I were talking about 
on the um the live stream that you know building this year and people who like focus on that will be like the winners i think longer term because they're like keeping their head down and just focusing on like getting things in place and and getting things up and running and that is like a really difficult thing to do yeah and and i would just add that we're definitely seeing more availability of the machines on the market and definitely through our uh, new marketplace foundry x and and that added availability um is not just that you know productions has ramped up or supply chain i, I do still see and and agree with amanda there's a, still some bottlenecks there and issues but the other reason is what amanda just alluded to there are miners who have ordered units some units have been shipped and there were delays in in building out the projects um and and that was also inevitable once you know if you're building multiple hundreds of megawatts large facilities there's so many different that can get delayed and wrong and partially it's from certain uh you know other electrical infrastructure parts that also were hit um with supply chain bottlenecks and with projects being delayed and units sitting on the floor you actually may want to sell them as a bitcoin miner thinking that you can later buy different units at actually a cheaper price and so uh, that's one reason that we're seeing and then interesting another reason is also, um, miners who have placed orders with Bitmain um, many, many months ago when, when Bitcoin price was at $60,000, uh, maybe they were hoping that they would, through self-mining efforts, make enough money to continue to make payments to the manufacturers to actually receive units. And um, what we see through our financing business is that a lot of miners are running out of cash and they're reaching out and asking for, for cash to be able to complete um uh, their purchase orders and so what we are seeing in some cases if if cash is not available or if they don't have other means of raising money in some cases they're also forced to liquidate some of the existing uh, fleet just to be able to complete the payment and not lose deposits to be able to get the machines that are already in order so there are many reasons why miners are um, uh, looking to sell units and, and we certainly see uh, extra capacity or availability in the market very interesting. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Uh, while Amy's coming up, I'll just let everyone know that I did toss a tweet into the nest uh, that includes a link to this machine greens. So you're welcome to use that to go check it out. I really do recommend watching it. It's really good. Hi, Amy. I see you on the but we can't hear you. Okay. Well, Amy, if you are able to speak, more than welcome to ask the last question. Otherwise, we'll wrap things up. We can another second here. Okay. All right, uh, Amanda, thank you so much for making time. I really appreciate it. I'll let you get on uh, back on about your day. Thank you guys. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Yuri, thanks so much. Appreciate both of you and all the work you're doing. Yeah. Thank you for having us. This was a blast. Bye guys. All right. Take care. Thanks to Amanda for joining us and to Yuri as well. You can find Amanda on Twitter at underscore Amanda underscore fab, and you'll find Yuri at Yurika 
Bulovich, J-U-R-I-C-A-B-U-L-O-V-I-C. I'm at Citizen Bitcoin, and you'll find Swan at Swan Bitcoin. On behalf of the Swan team, thank you so much for joining us. We really do hope you enjoyed this episode of the Swan Signal podcast and found it useful. It's fun to join us live on the broadcasts at youtube.com slash swansignal or on Twitter spaces at swanbitcoin. So head head over there, subscribe, and turn on the notifications, and we'll see you next time. You can subscribe to this podcast if you're not already at swansignalpodcast.com. Swan Signal is a production of Swan Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com.